welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I am Riley Landenberger, Marketing Manager at Next After, and today Brady is going to be chatting with Sorcha Rochford, the Director of Strategic Partnerships at Nation Builder, a software company whose goal is to distribute the infrastructure of leadership to everyone. In this episode, Brady and Sorcha will discuss data privacy, what the heck the acronyms GDPR and CCPA stand for, and why they are such a big deal. You'll get to learn the implications of these policies as they relate to nonprofits and how exactly you can balance how your donors want their data handled versus what you must navigate in order to reach them. I found it especially interesting to hear Sorcha talk about her work on political campaigns, the ideas she gathered about fundraising on the campaign trail, and how she learned to apply them to nonprofits and for profits. Lastly, you'll get to hear them talk about how this election season may impact fundraising and what you can do about it right now. So I hope you enjoy and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. I said, Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Hi, Sorsha. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Brady. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Plowing through. We live in a, a whole new time. Yeah, we were saying before, we talked months ago, but it seems like years ago. <laughs> a lot has uh, transpired since then. Just a little. Just a few just things. A few, just a few things. Well, we're going to talk about data privacy, GDPR, CCPA, all kinds of other acronyms that people maybe aren't familiar with. But before we really get into your area of expertise in an area I'm really interested in because I don't know that much about... Um, how'd you get into this world? So you don't sound like an American or a Canadian, so maybe that's one part of your journey, but how did you come to the U.S. and then how'd you end up, you know, being a nation builder focused on what you're focused on? Yeah. Um, so yeah, as you can hear, I am from across the pond, London to be precise. Uh, I moved to the U.S. back in 2012 and really have just been on a journey through political spectrum that has landed me right now in the middle of where tech and politics collides. So that's Nation Builder. Uh, the thing that kind of brought me into this world was I was obsessed with the concept of political campaigning in the United States um, and really wanted to understand how it was this multi-million dollar industry, especially when you look at Canadian politics, UK, Ireland politics, kind of where I grew up within. Uh, it wasn't exactly a money-making industry uh, to be in the political game. And so I jumped kind of over here in 2012 and, and bounced around a number of different campaigns in the U.S., really got my hands into what, it, what does it mean to fundraiser, a political campaign, uh, you know, field tactics, digital comms, all of that, and then bounced into consultancy as a whole um, and really started to understand the digital infrastructure and how you can translate political campaign tactics mm -hmm. to nonprofits and for-profits and corporate advocacy, et cetera. Uh, so that's been the journey I've been on as in the last eight years now. Cool. Well, we're going to maybe end with that, but maybe let's start with that because I'm also super fascinated by American politics as a Canadian and the fundraising arm in particular, since we focus and research, you know, fundraising, 
uh, political fundraising, especially around elections, is very interesting, very different than a lot of other fundraising and advocacy efforts. So what have, what have you learned maybe? I mean, you get to work with all kinds of different organizations, but what are some of the unique things that uh, advocacy or political fundraising has, for better or worse, you know, that you maybe don't see as much at with kind of other nonprofits or other seasons and cycles? Yeah, I think fundraising as a whole is actually a really personal thing. And organizations, whether it's political candidates, whether it's referendums, PACs, enter in, entity here, seem to forget that a lot. And so what I've seen over the past eight years is the more personal your fundraising engagement can be, the more successful you're going to be. And when you're talking, especially in the political lens, it's as the candidate being able to actually have a personal experience. And when you're running for president, that's an extremely large task. And so that's where you see this concept of, you know, actually having advocates out on the road for you. We're in COVID right now, so being out on the road is is not necessarily a thing. So we're hearing, you know, people are spending $15,000 to enter a Zoom, to be in a space with a candidate. And so there's that, like, a lust of what's my story as a candidate and how can I translate that to people to care? Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, obviously, we, we see that the more personal fundraising is, the better response you get as it relates to online. But... Uh, elections typically, I mean, we used to call them like scorched earth policies because it was kind of, you know, how do we buy as much ad spend? How many, how many emails can we kind of acquire? And then we aren't going to run again for another, you know, four years. So let's just blast away. (laughs) Is that, has that kind of changed maybe as we get more sophisticated and digital knowing like, yeah, there's an element of that, but that's really not a great recipe. Have you seen any of that in kind of your clients or work of, maybe moving away from that strategy, which was definitely the the case when digital first kind of came on the scene? Absolutely. Like, uh, it has to change. So I think three key things that, like, I've seen in the area of, and, like, it's funny, we start talking about fundraising, but it immediately goes into privacy, right? Mm -hmm. Consumers and voters have become much more aware of how their data is actually being used. Mm -hmm. And people are 100% demanding transparencies from the infrastructure, right? So the PayPals, the Stripes, the Nation Builders, et cetera, of the world, asking about where is my data and what are you doing with it, as well as the actual organizations itself. So if you're a nonprofit, if you're a candidate, they want to understand what's happening with their data. And that's a shift that we've seen drastically Mm. in the past kind of, you know, I'll say four years, where people and consumers and voters are now really kind of at the front of this and asking you and demanding what's actually happening with my personal data. Mm. We saw this amplified post the presidential election in 2016 with a number of investigations, right? Like it's really important when you think about how you're engaging with your individuals who are either supporting your cause as a nonprofit or supporting your candidacy, that you are being upfront and transparent about what it is you're doing with ad sets. The other thing to think about here is when you're talking about a list of, you know, let's say your email list is a million people. If you have a 4% open rate, that's irrelevant that you have a million people on your list because 4% of them are engaging with it. Mm -hmm. So it's all about understanding who is that 4%, why do they care, and how do I then turn those people into advocates for what my organization is doing? Mm. Yeah, and I think that's that's a big area of research that we're hoping to focus more on is just like the the hygiene side of emails in particular, because you spend all this time and energy to acquire that email. And then if you don't treat it well, or if you don't monitor those types of things, not only do you lose that email, but it impacts the other emails that you actually care. But now they're starting to kind of get phased out because of deliverability and those types of things. So that's definitely a, an area of more need. 
and like email decay is is a massive piece of this like there was a piece npr did a study around hillary clinton's like relaunch in 2016 from her original mm. list in 2008 and there was a 62 percent decay just mm. in straight up either no one they don't work at that address anymore they don't use that right. inbox it was a yahoo account that like they haven't opened in 10 years right <laughs> so um, email decay is a massive piece and then also understanding your deliverability as an individual uh, but an individual organization excuse me and and really making sure that you have a you know a, either a dedicated IP if you can afford that right so you're you are responsible for your own reputation of your email sending making sure you're targeting it really really micro targeting again this comes back to data privacy have you allowed your end users to actually go in and self-identify what their interests are what they care about what cadence they'd actually like to hear from from you on. Um, and then we can really kind of hone in on the types of ways they'd like to be communicated with. Email is great, but there's also texting. There's also, you know, soft engagement of brand exposure. So looking at either Google ads or social media ads or billboard placements, right? Mail is coming back. It's a thing. People are excited about getting mail again. We won't go down the U.S. postal yeah, service. Delayed, but yeah, that's a different, <laughs> different topic, different time. And even email hygiene, email decay, it was a big conversation. But we do want to focus on on data privacy, in particular, and because they are linked. But also, you know, you talked about the shift, uh, you know, kind of four years ago that has continued on. One of the big things is obviously GDPR, which I. I think a lot of us, myself included, don't always fully understand like what this means. So can you maybe just explain briefly and, you know, interestingly as possible, uh, like what the heck is GDPR and why do we need to talk about it? Absolutely. Uh, so GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulation, and it went into effect on May 25th, 2018, where it set new standards for data protection and kickstarted a wave of global policy laws that have honestly forever changed how we use the internet. So things that I would like, you know, prompt your listeners here. Have you noticed additional cookie acceptances on websites? Are there clearer asks when you're signing up for an email list? Things like that. Those are all related to GDPR. So now when you think about what actually is this, right? GDPR is a regulation in EU law on data protection and privacy for all individual citizens of the European Union and the European Economic Area. It also addresses the transfer of personal data outside of the EU. GDPR aims primarily to give control to the individuals over their personal data and to simplify the regulatory environment for international businesses by unifying the regulation within the EU. The other thing to note here, this compliance is a legal necessity and, in my opinion, an ethical imperative. And it paves the way for people to actually start campaigning in a smarter and more effective strategy to actually engage their community. Does that help cover that? Definitely. So then what are what are some of the implications other than, you know, we have to click I accept cookies all the time? <laughs> like, what are some of the actual implications specific to nonprofits? Because especially early, there was a lot of confusion, right? Like, oh, this is just in Europe. It's like, mm, no, that's not necessarily true. So what are some of the implications or things that organizations kind of have to do? Yeah. So I'm not a lawyer, so I will preface this with if you, you... Know, full, full, you know, coverage, full disclosure here, get, get a check, fact check from your, your legal team. Um, but th especially for nonprofits, you want to be thinking about this world of consent. And so when GDPR came into place, if you were a part, if, you know, if you'd signed up for any email list with an entity that was based in the European Union, you will have got what we call a repermissioning campaign. 
And the whole premise of that was so that your audience now is within your GDPR realm, right? So they've now officially, as of May 25th, actually opted in. And so in this re-permissioning world, you have to think about consent. And so when I'm talking about consent, I'm actually speaking about specifically a supporter consenting to hear from you electronically, whether that be email, ads, or texting. Consent means that an advocate has actually given your organization the right to contact them with a specific type of information. As a nonprofit, it's super important to think about providing granular consent options for your advocates. And so when I say granular, what I mean there is either you can go to the track of issue based. So like, do you want to hear about, uh, we're going to talk about saving cats. We're also going to talk about saving dogs and saving tortoises, right? Those are three different issue areas of interest. The other type of granular consent to think about is that cadence option, right? We're going to send you a monthly email, a weekly email, a biweekly email, right? Allowing them to know that. And then finally is the ask type. So this is a very, this would be like uh, GDPR 2.0, consents <laughs> 2.0, but this is action-based consents. And action-based consents are, do you want to hear about fundraising asks? Do you want to hear about volunteering asks? Do you want to hear about policy updates? And the reason I say this is actually important, as a non-US citizen living in America, I cannot donate to a political campaign, but I don't have the option to opt out of those fundraising emails, right? If I was given that true consent option, I would be able to really engage actively with volunteering or you know, sharing on social media. But because I don't have the option, I'm inundated with this fundraise, these fundraising asks that I can't participate in. And what that does to the end user, your supporters, creates drastic fatigue. People don't care. They just receive 12 emails from you about fundraising, things they can't do, as opposed to actually getting into their inbox with an ask that they would resonate with and want to engage with. So I really would like strive. You guys should think about how do I implement consents in one of those models, whether it's action, issue, or like uh, time cadence consents. Those are the three kind of buckets to think about as it pertains to how nonprofits are impacted by what GDPR created. So uh, thank you for that. That's such a clear way to put it. I think one of the, the challenges that, um, you know, marketers have or had continue to have, especially in the world of fundraising, is kind of like how much consent do should we actually give because if you ask a lot of people like hey can we ask you for money they're gonna say a lot of them no no please or you say hey how many emails do you want to receive and they're gonna say like one or zero and then we know on the fundraising side like well if we can't ask you for money and we can only send you one email a month we are not going to be able to raise money. So there's kind of like this reckoning of like, you know, this the metric side and kind of the human behavior of what you say is different than what you do. So how, how can we kind of balance those things in terms of honoring and respecting what donors want and giving them consent, but also knowing, you know, if we give them full consent to customize everything they do, A, they're creating a labyrinth for us to fulfill on the one side, but two, you know, it might not even be beneficial to them. How do we marry those two things together? Or how do you think we can? Because it's obviously a complex issue. Um, I'm going to say myth busting. Here we go. <laughs> uh, so myself and a number of other us at Nation Builder have been focused kind of since we really went hell for leather on, on what does it mean to have GDPR compliant software. And my first gut reaction was this is going to change how you campaign how it completely, the whole, the whole thing's going to ruin it. GDPR is bad, right? That was like my entire mindset on this. And what I was actually 
disproved, the data showed is that's actually incorrect. Mm. Um, and so let me actually just run you through some, some numbers to kind of ground that in. So when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about email open rates in particular, and this is a year over year from 2018 to 2019. And it's looking at anonymized data of organizations that are using consent so when we look at the U.S. market in that year-over-year -year study, it's a minus two on the average open rate. In Australia, it's minus four. In the EU, and our customers in the EU base, it is a plus three in terms of engagement with their email program. If we take that a step further and we look at the email clicks, so these are the people who are actually you know, engaging with that call to action, I found an extremely similar trend here. So APAC, Australia Pacific, minus one. U.S. kind of balanced out at zero. There was no change either way. But the EU, again, had a 2% increase, which implies that people are actively engaging in content more than before. And so this goes back, Brady, to that construct of if I have a million people, it doesn't matter that I have a million people if I'm not giving them the content that they desire to engage with. Yes, there is always going to be friction. You are not going to have, you know, maybe if you send to 500,000, you might get two people in there that randomly donate, as opposed to if you send to 50,000 who have said that they wanted to hear from you on your fundraising asks. Again, it's always going back to that construct of it's hard. It is hard to fundraise. You have to truly build a relationship with an individual for them to then want to do it. The other thing I think to think about here is implementing models of, you know, actual distribution of leadership within your organization, creating organic fundraisers, you know, allowing them to buy into what you're doing and having data privacy at the forefront of what you're doing gives that extra layer to you as an organization and why individuals should care about what you're doing. Yeah, no, that's great. And data should always help fill some of the void when we have our own fears and anxieties. I know one of the things that we've seen, at least, is kind of like how um, a user is acquired is hugely related to their likelihood to kind of give. So, you know, if you offer value through an ebook or a quiz or a petition or something like that and make it clear, here's what you're signing up for and here's what you give and then you give it to them. There's a much higher chance that they'll actually turn into a donor anyways, instead of, you know, the bait and switch they fill out some form and they don't know. And then you hit them with a fundraiser. Like that doesn't work anyways. Like it really, it really doesn't. So there is a direct correlation between, you know, how we actually acquire those folks in the first place and kind of what they go on to do. So in, in a lot of ways, what's been interesting, and I think, you know, kind of what you're alluding to is GDPR and subsequent legislation has kind of forced us to do better marketing, <laughs> you yep. know, like what we probably should have been doing, you know, from, from the get go. Because, it's, yeah, we have all these kind of unusable emails, um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that just aren't working. It's forced organizations to be transparent. And I think, you know, going back to the research that, that we did at Nation Builder, right, like you genuinely, it has for the first time in many, many years, people are more educated about what's happening in a technological sphere than they ever were. And so this idea that you can hide behind the fact that it's an ad is no longer a thing. Like mm. if I get an ad for something I Googled, I understand the off digital footprint mm. that people are using to target me with. And you adding transparency around that as an organization, in my opinion, is only a plus. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, one of the other kind of tips that I've heard uh, is, is for some of those questions around consent is to not ask for all those different levels all at once. Because uh, sometimes people don't know like how good your emails are or what they're actually going to be about. But after maybe a couple of weeks or a month or something, allow them to change preference and do that more frequently too. 
right? Where you say, hey, it's been six months, or especially if they've been inactive, that's part of, you know, email hygiene, but you can get them to re-engage by saying, you know, what do you actually want to receive or how frequently, as opposed to, and we see this when we do sign up, sometimes it's, you know, here's a list of all the possible things you could give, and then you have to check a bunch of boxes that you don't even have context for, right? So there's different ways to get consent and engagement without front-loading at all, which maybe isn't always the best thing. Absolutely. And like what you're what that's bringing up for me there is tactics and strategies, right? Like Mm -hmm. we've talked about some very basic, uh, you know, acronyms of what GDPR is, what consent models are. But when you think about your tactics and strategies of how you implement this, I think one thing I, I hope everyone takes away from today's session is when you are onboarding a new acquisition, right? Let's say you've just paid $2 per acquisition in whatever campaign ad set you just put out. If you do not onboard that person, into your organization before overwhelming them with a subscription preference or giving them these like, you know, immediate calls to action, you will lose that person Mm. within six months. We've seen it across the board. And when I say onboarding, I don't mean the generic three-prong email that you're going to give someone because they signed up on a petition page. Mm -hmm. Know these people. How did they come in? What was your source of origin? Was it a petition page? Maybe it was a volunteer sign up. Maybe it was a enter in thing here. Reflect that back to them in your first email. Your second email, give them something to engage with. Maybe it's recruit three friends. Maybe it's share a post on Facebook. Oh, I can't speak. Post on Facebook. <laughs> <There you go>. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like a soft ask, something that's easy and attainable for folks to interact with. And then finally, close that out. Close out that relationship. Welcome to our organization. We're so excited to have you a part of it. Give them the understanding of now like, okay, our email program is X, Right. You have to onboard people because at the end of the day, a lot of acquisitions happen at around 11 o'clock at night when people are lying in their bed, (laughs) scrolling through things, and they forget when they wake up at 7 a.m. and they've got 100 inbox and they've got a two-year-old and there's no school, right? Like, unfortunately, your organization or your candidacy is not going to be the most important thing to that individual. So bring them on a journey, actually care about them. And that's where, again... I'm going to keep honing this point, but like (laughs) build a relationship with your donors or else it's just not worth it. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think it can be over overwhelming or can seem overwhelming, right? It's like, oh my gosh, we have to do, you know, all this customization and personalization, but a like good tools should really help you make it not quite as difficult as it may appear. But also I said in a session with uh, Greenpeace UK last year, maybe, and it was all about their onboarding experience. And what was great is that they they initially made it too complex. They, you know, they have eight different category areas and they had all these different things going on and they couldn't test, they couldn't track it. And so they actually simplified it to, to more what you're talking about. We're like the first touch point for sure. What's your petition area or your cause area? Confirm that. And then they kind of just funneled everyone into basically two kind of engagement tracks of sorts where they could actually test and track and optimize. And so they kind of put people in those kind of main two tracks. And this is a very sophisticated, very large organization, but the temptation might be to actually go too crazy for this. So there's that balance, right, of, yes, you know, personalization, customization, but don't go too crazy. Otherwise, you can't even, you know, scale it or even manage it so that everyone's got to find that own balance. Yeah. Um, I want to transition over to another acronym that maybe we don't know about because it's actually not talked about as much as GDPR, but it's probably more important as it relates to U.S.-based nonprofits. Uh, And it's the CCPA? Yes. CCPA. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why this is actually such a big deal? Uh, 
Absolutely. Uh, so CCPA stands for California Consumer Privacy Act. And the intentions of the act are provide, to provide California residents with the right to know what personal data is being collected about them, know whether their personal data is sold or disclosed and to whom, say no to the sale of personal data, access their personal data, request a business delete any personal information about a consumer collected from that consumer, and lastly, not to be discriminated against for exercising their privacy rights. Mm. And CCPA went into effect January 1st, 2020. There's a lot of learnings, right, from GDPR that can be implemented within the U.S. as a whole. But CCPA was the first, or well, California was the first state to actually bring this in at the state legislature level. And we're starting to see an impact of that from the U.S. organizations that we work with. And is the um, assumption that other states will adopt something very similar and this will kind of make its way through all of the United States or what, what do you think? I know it's hard to know, but what do you think? Sure. Um, before we hit a global pandemic, uh, the conversation around data privacy and CCPA and, you know, consumers rights, uh, data dividend, think about Andrew Yang, like that conversation was exciting and it was at the forefront of people's minds. We're obviously now in a different time and there are different priorities that are being set. And so, you know, back in January, February, mm. there definitely was a thought that this could be a federal bill. There could be a large conversation around this in the 2020 election, looking at all types of angles of, you know, both the Internet, the access to the Internet, all the way down to what, why am I being targeted with this ad? We've seen social media companies start to become extremely transparent about what ways in which or ways in which they are using your data sets and so that's happening at the private level as opposed to at the governing level which is not something that i could have predicted or anyone could have predicted given covid mm. but what i do think we will see instead of it being like a state-by-state -state pop off will be that there will be some federal guidelines mm. that states are then able to kind of you know navigate what feels right or what's appropriate to them mm. um, and i think ccpa is a really good kind of standard for folks to look at as a way that they can operate around what this is what I've seen from a lot of um, our advocacy customers at Nation Builder and our nonprofits is that folks, even if they are, you know, they've only got maybe 4,000 people in their audience are in California, they've actually implemented what CCPA requires across their entire organization so that they're equipped and they're ready if it does come from a federal standpoint. Yeah, that was going to be the, the next question was kind of like, how, how can organizations you know, prepare? And is that one of the things that you even recommend is to kind of, I mean, again, the principles are are kind of good principles. Like we should be honest and transparent. And a lot of the times it actually just benefits us. We won't spend as much time, energy and money on people that don't want to hear from us or don't want our ads. Like that's actually not a bad thing. So is that, is that the kind of general approach is saying, Hey, what you should start adopting these things or maybe phasing them in now before you have to. Yeah. The phase approach is what I recommend to our customers mm. across the board. Um, it is it is drastic to go from, you know, sending if your email is 150,000 to actually segmenting out your California people and, you know, going through a repermissioning construct like that. Mm. That's a that's a, a sharp shift. Um, but what I've seen worked really well is like, OK, we use California as this like test case. And we actually then monitor that, right? We do some A-B testing on, on how is this impacting our overall fundraising goals, our overall engagement tracks that we're looking for. Mm -hmm. And then we start to move it through, right? It's a really great way for you to be able to put it in a kind of a standard of how your organization practices when it comes to 
personal data and what you do with that data and how you collect it. Uh, I think it's really important for folks to start to think through, okay, if we're going to try CCPA's uh, regulations, even though we don't, we aren't legally required to, and again, check with your lawyers <laughs> what you are required to do, <laughs> um, but let's test it. Let's see if it's actually helpful to go out to our entire base and say, hey, we want to know what types of email communications you want to receive. This is the data that we have on you. Could you actually maybe give us your employer data set because we don't have it? Right? Mm. You can use it very strategically in your you know, communications plan as it pertains to acquiring additional data sets on people, as well as allowing them to know what data sets you have. Yeah, I'm interested, too, especially because you work for a technology platform. Like what what role you think, not necessarily just Nation Builder, but what role technology can and, and should play? Because I know there's probably a lot of people listening who work for a smaller nonprofit and just go, yeah, right. Like, how am I supposed to do all of this thing? You know, what role does does the tool have? I know we use a tool that when G- GDPR was phased in, we could just check a box and they would help us be GDPR compliant, at least in some areas. You know, like that's a good usage of, you know, technology actually helping instead of putting everything on the end user. So, you know, what what have you seen in your own work or what do you think technology companies can, will or should do as it relates to uh, GDPR or CCPA in particular? Yeah, and I I think for me, I have to distinguish technology companies. So you have the social media wing, and then you have the infrastructure wing, and mm. Nation Builder fits into that infrastructure wing. So giving you the infrastructure to run your nonprofit, to start your campaign, et cetera. And if I look at it from an infrastructure perspective, I think there is a responsibility, which is, you know, as we felt as a company, our, you know, our engineering focus in the lead up to May 25th was GDPR. How do we make our software GDPR compliant? So the experience you just described there, Brady, of checking a box is a thing that people can do. Because at the end of the day, what we want to be able to do is actually allow people to do the hard work of organizing, of right. building a community, of running a nonprofit, because that's hard. Yeah. The software should make that easier. And so there's a lot of technicalities in both GDPR and CCPA as it pertains to you know, a digital will. When I say digital will, that's a part of the law that speaks to if you pass away, if something happens to you, what happens with your data, right? Mm. Just simple things like that, that have to be timestamped and stored in a particular way as it pertains to where the data lives. Mm. You shouldn't have to think about that as a comms director, right? right? Like you just shouldn't. But as an end user, as a consumer, you should be able to go to your you know, personal profile is what we call it in Nation Builder, your personal profile and say, this is my digital will. I want to download my data set right here. That's where, for me, the infrastructure software comes in as a really key component of being successful running your nonprofit or running your organization. I can't speak for social media. I do not work for social media company, <laughs> so I won't go down that track. Yeah, no, I think I think the distinction even, it, it's... It's helpful for everyone to think like what camp is the tool that you're using in or not? Because even, you know, like we use a a landing page tool, which is great, but their job isn't to make sure that all everything that we do in the emails we send are necessarily compliant. You know, they only think about a piece of the puzzle or if you're Facebook or Twitter, is it really their job to think through all that stuff? Well, no. And this is part of the reason why they get in trouble is they don't. But it's also somewhat of an unfair expectation on about us as marketers to assume that they should solve all those problems. So I think that's useful thinking, you know, you've got camps and an infrastructure camp. They should be able to help you a lot more in these areas. And if they're not, they probably should. Whereas if they're not in the infrastructure camp, then maybe they don't need to help you as much. So I think that distinction is really, really helpful and glad 
you know, folks like you are actually building those types of things in software. Cause you're right. If you're a comms director thinking about digital wheels, which I didn't even know was a thing, uh, you know, he got a lot of other things to worry about. So that's great. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, anything else, uh, I want to move into kind of election talk, not like, you know, political guesses or anything like that, <laughs> just as it relates to fundraising, but anything on GDPR or CCPA before we do that, that you want to mention? Yeah, just, just a couple of things in the tactics and strategy place. Uh, so, I, you know, we've gone through a lot of acronyms. We've, we've kind of touched on some different findings, data findings. Uh, but I think if I'm an organization listening to the, this podcast, well, how I like to give people tidbits is through things you can actually do. Mm. So uh, number one is a sunset policy. Mm. So when I say sunset policy, this is a method where you're going to set a time limit on how long a supporter can remain inactive on your email list before you remove them. So thinking about a sunset policy means, you know, depending on the, your organization, the size of your list, you can set a policy of if someone doesn't open an email in 90 days, they become inactive. You sunset them from your audience. That may sound absolutely terrifying, <laughs> and I get that, but it is a really, really good email hygiene best practice and also feeds into data privacy. You do not have to immediately say goodbye. You can do a three-prong email drip. You can try and reach out to them in a different method, method, whether it's texting, whether it's social media, direct mail. But think about that as an organization. Could we implement the sunset policy? What would that look like? The other reconfirmation campaigns. If you are going to implement CCPA into your organizing and fundraising strategies, think about doing a reconfirmation campaign with your entire list, right? You may be able to actually segment out seven or eight percent of it because they're highly engaged and you don't need to reconfirm them. But the remainder, actually send them outreach. Hey, do you still want to hear from us? Or maybe it's not as blunt as that. It's we're going to change up our uh, comms tactics. We're going to be sending ABCD. Reconfirm that you want to be involved in this particular way. The other is email deliverability. We touched on this slightly, uh, but it's really important that you know getting your email delivered is hard. And so when you are thinking about your you know overarching strategy, consents are going to be able to drive your engagement. So I would really think about what different types of consents can we put in so that internet service providers are not looking at you as spam or as a bad sender. And then the last thing I would is like you all to think about is tailored content. And so that may sound extremely basic, but reflect back how people are involved in your organization. Again, it's to the data point. What data do you have on them? What data do you need on them? Um, tailored content is going to you know, help your engagement strategy tenfold. Awesome. Those are fantastic tips. And I think the, the common through through line there is really just engagement. I think we as marketers need to retrain ourselves on the metrics that we we monitor. And if all you focused on was how do we improve engagement, not necessarily like volume metrics, not necessarily even like open metrics, but like define engagement through real engagement. And if you just optimize for that, you would you would work your way into things like sunsetting policies and tailored engagement. And because those are the things that lead to engagement and engagement leads to revenue. So those are all really, really good tips. Thank you so much. Um, before we go, I know one of the, the things is we head into this, you know, election season. I'm just curious, uh, what, what impact has elections had on fundraising in the past or what, you know, impact will it have? I know we were talking to an organization that was like, we're not trying to advertise at all, you know, between September and November because we're just going to get smoked in terms of costs and we're just going to save our budget and, you know, move on. You know, what are some of the real implications in the U.S. for, for having an election? 
That's a big one. Um, Yes. So any election cycle is tough in terms of noise, in terms of fighting for inbox placement, fighting for being the most relevant thing. I think this moment, 2020, makes that even drastically more complicated than it's ever been. Mm. And when you are fighting with a public health crisis, a political crisis, and an election, there's a lot of noise. So Mm. I think that some tips in that, make yourself relevant, right? Like, are you, are you actually, is, is the work you're doing, you know, affiliated with any of those buckets, the current mm. moment that's happening? Mm-hmm. Also think locally. If you're a national organization, think about your local geographics. Who do you have on the ground? Who, what is it that is happening for you as a nonprofit or for you as a, a movement and advocacy group that is impacting people locally? Because at the end of the day, with everything I said earlier of, of the parent who wakes up and has a hundred emails and a child and et cetera, mm-hmm. If you can't reach them where they are at, if you can't meet people where they're at, you're not going to succeed, regardless of whether or not you take your ad spend elsewhere, right? So those just like thinking about that is really important. The other thing, um, that person, like personal relationship, if you actually have a relationship with an individual, whether that be electronically or else, um, you're going to be able to lean on them and ask for them to spread the word, mm. which is a very different construct and, and strategy as a whole than here's $100,000 and putting it on an ad spend. Right. Um, like identify your 5%, get tools to help you identify your 5% of people, your top advocates, that's going to help you break through the noise the same way it helps candidates break through the noise if they have a local ambassador who is speaking on their behalf rather than them flying in from out of town to come and share the great word of why they're so amazing. Right. Awesome. That's fantastic stuff. Thank you so much. Well, uh, we touched on some pretty big subjects, so I appreciate you breaking them down and providing some actionable tips. Um, Where can people find out more about you and Nation Builder and your work uh, if they want to learn more? Yeah. Um, so probably should have done this at the top. Nation Builder is a software <laughs> company. Um, we were, we're based out or were based out in Los Angeles. Everyone's remote now. Um, but we've been around for 10 years. Our founding mission is we need more leaders. We need better leaders. And we need to distribute the software of leadership to everyone, whether that's running a nonprofit, running your own small business, running for office, et cetera. We give you the infrastructure for that. And so what I mean by that is we give you a CRM, We give you a CMS, we give you a fundraising platform, and we give you broadcast tools for email and texting. And we start at $29 a month. How exciting. (laughs) Um, And so you can find all about that at nationbuilder.com. And I am Saoirse Rochford. You will find me all over that website. Lots of (laughs) events, things like that, that I host all the time. So please, if you have any questions, please don't feel free. Don't feel free. Do feel free to reach out. Do feel free. There you go. And we'll be sure to send out those links as well. So thank you so much, Saoirse, for taking the time and good luck with the rest of 2020. Oh, thank you, Brady. It's been fantastic. And you as well. Hi again, this is Brady. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to listen to all future episodes or maybe go back and listen to some of our past episodes, you can do so by going to generosityfreakshow.com or you can search the Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, pretty much wherever you listen to your pods. And uh, if you have any questions or a suggested guest, or maybe you yourself would like to come on the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at podcast at nextafter.com. That's podcast at nextafter.com. 
And if you want to find out more about this vision to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world and what we're doing at Next After in terms of research, resources, and training, you can find out more at nextafter.com. That's nextafter.com. Thank you very much for listening. And finally, I have to say thank you to Nathan Hill, our producer and mixologist. This would not be possible without him. So thank you, Nathan. And thank you once again for listening. 